Hi, my name is Maddie. The Old Testament reading is found in 2 Kings 6, 15 through 17. Elisha's servant got up early and went out. He saw an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. His servant said to Elisha, Oh no, master, what will we do? Don't be afraid, Elisha said, because there are more of us than there are of them. Then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw that the mountain was full of horses and fiery chariots surrounding Elisha. The word of the, word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Linda. The New Testament reading is found in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are on the road to destruction. The God of this age has blinded the minds of those who don't have faith, so they couldn't see the light of the gospel that reveals Christ's glory. Christ is the image of God. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is David. Thank you for standing for the gospel. The gospel reading is from Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Jesus and his disciples came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch and heal him. Taking the blind man's hand, Jesus led him out of the village. After spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on the man, He asked him, Do you see anything? The man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees, only they are walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again. He looked with his eyes wide open, his sight was restored, and he could see everything clearly. The Gospel of the Lord. You remain standing as we pray. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and to open our eyes so that we would see Jesus today. And we pray that in the light of who Jesus is, we would begin to see our world and to see ourselves and to see everything differently because of the way we see you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are 11 weeks into our series here on the Gospel of Mark. This is part 11, and you recall when we started, we said we're going to try to answer the question, or at least wrestle with the question, rather, throughout the series about who Jesus is. Who is this Jesus? And we talked about how Mark kind of leaves that uh, open for us just a little bit. He, he doesn't have all the theology up front that John does. Uh, he doesn't have all of this backstory and history that Matthew does with the genealogy and the lineage of Abraham and all of that stuff. He doesn't even have all of the stories and parables that Luke has. Mark kind of gives us just sort of the raw details of the story and lets us kind of journey along with him so that we can, along with the disciples, scratch our heads and say, who is this? Who is this Jesus? So I wonder what you think. I wonder what you think uh, so far. 
Some of you, maybe you're saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm still listening. I'm not quite sure. I think Jesus had a lot of good things to say. I think Jesus did a lot of good things. And certainly his life was very influential, influential enough that history kind of uh, divides itself to a certain degree around his life and death. And so maybe you're still here and you're still listening. And we're very thankful for that. In fact, you might recall in one of the messages during this series, we said, it's better to be a doubter who keeps listening than it is a quote-unquote believer who thinks they already know. So it's great. It's great to keep listening, to keep saying, well, who is this Jesus? And even for those who might say, well, I know the answer to that. And you can recite the whole stanzas of the creed about Jesus. And you can say, well, you know, this is who he is. And he's fully God and fully man and God from God, light from light. I know everything about Jesus. It might still be the occasion for you to say, but do I really see him as he is? One of the interesting questions that we're going to wrestle with today is how does faith work? What does it mean to actually come to a place where we say, aha, this is who Jesus is, and I make this confession of faith. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. How does faith actually work? I don't know uh, how it was like for you, but, but the chances are if you grew up kind of, if you've been a Christian for a while, then probably there was one time, at least one time in your life where there was an altar call that you responded to. And maybe you were at one of those altar calls where you felt like you got tricked by the preacher. You know what I'm talking about? Where it's like, okay, every head bowed and every eye closed. Now, if you want to follow Jesus and you don't want to burn in hell, it was always, you know... So that you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I don't know if I want to follow Jesus, but I know I don't want to burn in hell. (laughs) You're like, if those are the only two choices, I don't know that I'm choosing this, but I'm definitely not choosing that, right? And then it's like, okay, if you would you just raise your hand? And you're just like, okay, well, maybe I'll raise my hand. And he's like, every head's bowed, so I'm not, you know, no one's going to see this. And then the preacher goes, and now if you raised your hand, would you stand to your feet? And you're like, nobody said anything about standing to my feet, but okay, I don't want to go to that other place, right? And so then you stand to your feet, and then the preacher says, now if you're standing to your feet, would you come down to the front? And you're thinking, come down to the front? No, this is exactly what I don't want. I'm an introvert who does not like hell. And so, and so the preacher says, listen, Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. Don't be ashamed now. Come on down front. You're thinking, okay, all right, well, I better come down front. I, I, I grew up in a, a Pentecostal church that gave me many gifts. It gave me the gift of believing that I could hear the voice of God as a child. It gave me the gift of a living relationship with God. Those gifts far outweigh any of the other um, baggage, but it did come with a little bit of baggage. Um, and, and one of those things was that it scared the hell out of me as a kid. I mean, I, I, I responded to a lot of altar calls because I was afraid of hell, you know. And, and it wasn't until later in life that I realized it's much better to follow Jesus because Jesus is worthy of following than it is to follow Jesus because you don't want to go to that other place. But I wonder what happens to us when the pressure is cranked up to make a decision. Sociologists, when they talk about evangelicals, one of the marks of an evangelical, they say, just from the outside looking in, is something they call conversionism. A high emphasis on coming to a conversion moment, coming to a moment where you decide and you have converted, you've crossed the line of faith. Now listen, there's something very good about that. 
When, when the evangelical movement was beginning, it was a response to a kind of cultural Christianity where people thought, well, aren't we all Christians, right? I mean, we all sort of, we grew up here, we did this. Isn't being a Christian sort of like just being around it? We sort of just are, right? And so, and so there, were, there was a wonderful gift of the evangelical movement that said, no, you, you need to have personal faith, and it's good for you to affirm this yourself. And so, yeah, that is important. That is good. Thank God for that. But somewhere along the way, we've, we've put all of the emphasis on this one moment of decision. And so we hurry people along, and so people have to say, okay, so who is it? Who is Jesus? You better know. Who is Jesus? If you died tonight, who is Jesus? You know, and you're saying, well, I mean, I'm not ready to decide that. Our question this morning as we look at Mark chapter 8 is how does faith work? How does it work to come to this place of answering this question about who Jesus is. Mark 8 opens with a story about feeding the 4,000, but then it goes on and it talks about the Pharisees demanding a sign. And when they demand a sign, it's something they want to see. This whole chapter in Mark 8, much of it is about seeing. It's about seeing. So the Pharisees demand a sign because they want to see something. Jesus says, you're not going to see what you want to see. Then later on, the disciples, he's talking with the disciples, and he says to them, do you, do, do you still not understand? You have eyes, but do not see. And then Mark tells us a story about a blind man being healed. It's very interesting because this story, we, can, we believe this story happened, but Mark puts it right here in this setting in Mark 8 as a way of saying this story is a picture of people beginning to see. Listen here in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, very unusual, he asked him, do you see anything? Now listen, this is the only time, one of the few times rather, that, Mark, that Jesus does a miracle and asks a question. Normally, when Jesus does a miracle, it's record, it, he, he's recorded as giving a command. Pick up your mat and walk. Be healed. Stretch out your hand. Those are all commands. Very few times does Jesus do a miracle and ask a question. This is our first clue that Mark means for us to see this miracle not just as a story on its own, but as a picture of faith. Jesus is saying, do you, what do you see? It's very much like him saying to the disciples, do you still not understand? Do you have eyes but cannot see? And, they, and he looked up and he said, I see dead people. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he did not say that. He said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly, and he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. This story of the blind man being healed is also one of the only miracle stories that doesn't occur immediately. Now think about this. We've talked about how, almost every week how Mark, what's his favorite word in his gospel? Immediately. 42 times he says it. Immediately Jesus got up. Immediately they went. Immediately the man took his mat and was healed. Immediately, immediately, immediately. And here's a story about a healing that is not immediate. But it's not just a story about healing. It's actually a story about faith. You see, in Mark, the only thing that doesn't happen immediately is faith. 
The only thing that doesn't happen immediately in Mark's gospel is belief. The disciples are on this process of gradually believing, gradually recognizing who Jesus is. The people all around Jesus are in a process of gradually starting to see, oh, who is this? Wait a minute, he teaches with authority. Wait a minute, he drives out demons. Wait a minute, who who is this guy? The only thing that doesn't happen immediately in Mark is faith. And so this story is a picture of that. It's a picture of how it's a, it's a gradual process of the disciples beginning to see. Uh, recently, my wife and I went and saw the movie Risen, which is really well done. It's a movie ab- uh, about the resurrection, but kind of told from the perspective of a, uh, of a Roman soldier. And it's, 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 it's very interesting. One of the things I think the movie does well is it, it shows us how baffled the disciples were by the resurrection, that they really had, they were sort of fumbling about to say, wait, is, is this, how did this happen or what's going on? And uh, I was talking with a friend about this, and he said, Glenn, he's like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, like, these disciples were told so many times that he was going to rise. How come they didn't believe? And I said, no, man, you're thinking of the disciples through the lens of what you know. You're not thinking of the disciples through the lens of what they knew. If you were a first century Jew, there was a, pers- there was a certain odd, odds that you wouldn't have actually believed in resurrection. You might have believed in people coming back from the dead, a resuscitation, but you didn't actually believe in resurrection. The Sadducees were a whole group of teachers that didn't believe in resurrection, and as the preacher joke goes, that's why they were sad, you see. But there were other, sorry, I couldn't resist, but there there were other Jews who did believe in resurrection, but they thought it would happen at the very end of the age, at the very end of time when Yahweh would come. What they had no category for was that the Messiah would suffer and then experience resurrection, as in not resuscitation, but a glorified, resurrected body right in the middle of history before anyone else experienced resurrection. They had no category for that. No category. So we can't fault them for scratching their heads a little bit and saying, what, what is going on? Which is, which is actually part of what makes the witness of the gospel stories really credible. Because you see them kind of sorting through it. They're like, the women saw it at the tomb, and, and, and then, the, then the, we saw him appear to us in a room, and then he disappeared, and then we're having breakfast at the shore, and we, we don't know what's, like, who, what's happening here. It's as if... It's only after the resurrection that they look back at their, life of, at their life with Jesus and they say, oh, now I see. Now I see. It's a little bit like this blind man. He has some sight, but he sees people like trees, but walking. And Jesus is like, yeah, okay, let's do this again. <laughs> right? It's a little bit like that. The disciples are starting to see Jesus for who he is, but it's not until after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit comes upon them and dwells in them and helps them to look back at all of it and to say, oh, wow, we could never have predicted that. It's, I alluded to the movie The Sixth Sense. You've seen that movie, some of you, right? It's a little bit like that. If you've watched that movie more than once, and I, actually, I've only watched it once, but if you watch it a second time, you can go through the whole movie now and pick up things that you didn't catch because you now know the ending, right? It's the same thing with the Gospels. They're revisiting all of these scenes with Jesus, and they're like, oh, that means something different now. I get it now. You see, faith is a journey of gradually gaining our sight. 
Faith is a journey of gradually gaining our sight. Jesus, after the resurrection, says to Thomas, Thomas, the one who wants to see Jesus' wounds, Jesus says, Thomas, blessed are you because you see and then you believe. But you know what? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's all of us. Haven't seen and yet we believe. Faith is not totally blind to faith. Sometimes people say, oh, faith is blind. Faith. It's, not, it's not quite like that. But it's moving forward, trusting before you fully see. And sight catches up to faith, right? Sight catches up to faith. But faith is a journey of gradually gaining our sight. It's a process. We gradually gain our sight. I want to stop for a moment right here and talk about what that might mean for us as a church. You see, when we think of this, there's a paradigm that all of us are used to, used to um, thinking through when we think about faith. And it usually looks like this. Believe, then belong, then become. Believe, then belong, then become. Believe in Jesus, cross the line of faith, then join a great church, and then become. Now, there's nothing wrong with this paradigm. That is the way it works for many people. Many, peop- many of you might say, well, that was me. I-, I came to a place where I believed in Jesus, and I confessed my faith, and then I looked for a group of people to belong, uh, to a, a church to belong to, and then I began to become a little bit more like, that, that describes you. But do you know, there is another paradigm. And that sometimes, sometimes the challenge with this first par- paradigm is it makes, makes it seem that discipleship and community are optional. That faith can be this private moment of believing. Well, it's just me, and I decided, and I believe. Now we'll see if I want to belong. That's extra credit, right? Or, or, or becoming. like Well, I mean, I don't know, maybe. And this is where they're kind of right about us and conversionism. We just want the conversion decision, but we don't catch the big picture. And so maybe it's helpful to know that there actually is another paradigm for this. Paradigm two would be like this. Belong and then believe. And then become. But the belonging kind of happens first. That means we don't look at people and say, wait a minute, you're not like me. You don't think like me. You don't believe like me. We're not together in this. Therefore, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Listen, sometimes our hostility to the world does not invite people in to belong and then believe. Sometimes we want to lead by saying how different we are. Let me just tell you how different I am. And in our minds, we're taking a stand for Christ. But we've, what we've done is we've not given them a chance to, end, to be welcomed into community and then gradually begin to believe. Now, some of you might be sitting here and thinking, well, Glenn, that sounds very risky. Like, what is this, some kind of postmodern mishmash, you know, like belong and then believe? Actually, I was listening once um, at, at, at a lecture at Calvin College where Justo Gonzalez was, was visiting. And who, if you know Justo Gonzalez, he's one of the um, leading church historians of our day, leading living church historians. And he's written a number of books. Some of the really accessible ones are called The Story of Christianity, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Beautiful little vignettes of the early church, if you're fascinated by those stories. And Gonzalez was saying, he said, He said, listen, a lot of how the early Christians shared their faith was they would welcome people into their households and into their life, and then eventually they would come to belief. 
and eventually be baptized. But they welcome them into their daily life and their daily routine. And, and imagine this, okay? First century world is different in many ways. But imagine someone's dealing with poverty or wasn't able to work, um, was not connected with another household. And early Christians would welcome them into their household. And then over time, the whole household gets saved. They were belonging many times before they actually believed. I mean, imagine that. Imagine if there was a way to welcome people into our friendships, into our lives, into our relationships, and then faith becomes a process of gradually gaining their sight. But you know what it means? It means you can't be judgmental about, about church people being hypocrites. Because all of a sudden, church people might be people who are just as much along the journey as you are. Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes people say that. They're like, man, I don't, I don't like all these Christians. They're just such hypocrites. It's like, you know what? If, if we're going to welcome people to belong before they believe, and even in the process, far before they actually start becoming like Jesus, then you know what? It's going to get messy. There's going to be people that aren't like Jesus yet. <gasps> and we're going to have to figure this out. What does this look like to be with them together? One of the practical ways this is going to take place for us as a church is through something called Alpha. Now, I've talked about this a little bit a couple Sundays ago, but I want you to know about this as a church, because this is maybe the most physical, tangible way that we can express a kind of radical hospitality to people who don't yet believe. So Alpha was designed in London somewhere in the 1980s. Over the course of the last several decades, 27 million people around the world have done it. And it's been in over 150 countries, different languages, all of this stuff. It especially thrives in post-Christian Europe. So I've been really intrigued by this because I, one, one of the things they said to me uh, when I was visiting them in, in, in London was, Glenn, we think that Alpha came to the U.S. too soon because you guys weren't post-Christian yet. I'm starting to think we're a little closer, <laughs> right? And so the way it's designed is, it's, the way we're doing it at New Life Downtown is we're doing it over eight weeks. We're doing it all through April and all through May. We're going to do it Wednesday nights at the Commons, our place right there at Tejon and Boulder. And we are paying to cater a nice meal, a nice dinner for everyone. That alone is an act of hospitality. And the idea is this. You come, you sit at different tables. We have 16 people who are table hosts Two per table. We'll probably have about eight tables. And people will come in, share a meal, have some great kind of conversations at their tables. I'll give a short talk on, some, on week one will be, is there more to life? Week two, who is Jesus? Week three, why did he die? Week four, how do you have faith? And on and on it goes. And after that short talk, the conversations will happen at the tables where there is no question off limits. And not only no question off limits, but no quick answers. In fact, our table facilitators are highly skilled at answering a question with another question. So that's fascinating. Tell me more about that. Why do you think that is for you? How long have you thought this way? Because if there's one thing people outside the faith community say about us, it's that we're not very good at welcoming people until they're all cleaned up. We want paradigm one. Please believe. Please have your doctrine in order, and then you can join my group. Now, I get it. So we're going to keep meal groups as meal groups, right? But alpha is alpha. <laughs> alpha is the time when we're saying, listen, come and have a meal. Come and ask anything. We're not going to give you easy answers. We're not going to rush to answers. We might ask you more questions. 
And then over time, we'll do six Wednesday nights in a row, then we'll do a weekend retreat, and then we'll wrap up with the final Wednesday night. I'm telling you about this for two reasons. One, you might be able to invite someone to this. You might be sitting here and thinking, I know a friend or a neighbor or a coworker that they would love this. They'd never come on a Sunday morning. I can't get them to come to church, church, but if I could get them to come to a meal to explore their questions about life from a Christian perspective, I'd get them to come. And I want you to know, we have cards like this out in the lobby. Grab a card, and if you invite someone, you can come with them. Come with them. We, on the website is a, is a free kind of RSVP or an RSVP page, RSVP page, a way to do it for free. It's a lot of acronyms there. Um, so, that you can, so that we can have a head count and kind of know, you know. We have space for about 40. But the other reason I'm telling you about this is I don't want, I don't want people who already are strong in their faith to come. But there might be some of you who have just kept showing up here on a Sunday morning because you're like kind of curious about this Jesus thing. And maybe you're here and you're saying, I'd like to explore those questions in a safe environment. There really isn't Q&A time on Sundays, you know. Maybe that's for you. So would you think about it? This is a practical way we can, we can embrace and, and, and live out this thing of faith being a journey of gaining our sight. But the story goes on. Because you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, Glenn, how do you know that this blind man's story is really about the disciples? Or a picture of the disciples anyway. Verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. Now you remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's not Jesus Christ, son of Joseph and Mary Christ, right? Christ was this very particular title. It means the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one. And so when Peter says it, he says, I see it. You are the Messiah. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. But then the story goes on. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. There were times that Jesus spoke in perils, but now he's spelling it out plainly. I'm going to suffer and die and be rejected. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, I wish I could have seen that, you know. There's Peter saying, hey, Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you're a great rabbi. I mean, you're probably one of the best rabbis we've ever seen. And the miracles, out of this world. I mean, literally. But uh, the suffering thing. I, I just think you should tone it down a bit. Because we're not really following you for that, right? We love the bread and the fish, pretty cool. But we're not really following you for this whole suffering thing, so just don't say that anymore. <laughs> Jesus, uh, Peter rebuked Jesus. That's fun, isn't it? <laughs> and turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, you don't get it. You don't see it. You're thinking through a worldly lens. You see me, but you don't yet see the world through me. That's different, isn't it? You see, it may take a moment of grace to see Jesus as he really is. But it will take a lifetime of grace to see what it fully means. 
It'll take a, it takes a moment of grace. Let's say, oh, Jesus, I see it. You're the Messiah. That's amazing. But it's going to take a lifetime of grace to see what it fully means, to really catch it, to really see what its implications are for life and for this world and for the here and now. Listen, everything becomes different when you not only see who Jesus is, but you begin to see the world through him. C.S. Lewis used the, the, the analogy of the sun. He said, it's not just that we see the sun, but by its light, we see the world. That's what it means to come to grow in faith, is we're not just seeing Jesus, but we're starting to see the whole world in the light of who Jesus is. That's a process. That's a process of the disciples gradually beginning to grow in this, gradually beginning to discover this. See, it's one thing to call Jesus the Messiah, but the Messiah they were expecting was a conquering king. How could it be that Jesus is talking about suffering? How could it be that he's talking about being rejected? How could he be talking about his death? It's Palm Sunday today. It's also called the Sunday of the Passion. The Passion in that old English sense of the word, the suffering. It's the Sunday of the suffering, the beginning of Holy Week. On Sunday, they welcome him in. Hosanna! Yes, you're here to save us. Even riding in on a donkey was a prophetic, symbolic act that Zechariah had spoken about. They thought, that's it. You're him. You're the one, the Messiah. So Peter's confession is right on the money, but he doesn't realize what it means. And neither did the people, because a few days later... They were watching him be crucified. And not just watching him, but chanting with the crowds, crucify him. On Sunday, Hosanna. On Friday, crucify him. Why? Because they didn't understand what it meant to call Jesus the Messiah. But do you know that's true for us? We love Jesus we love Jesus, the Son of God. We love the Jesus that we've fashioned and shaped in our mind, but we're not sure about how this Jesus will challenge everything. If you have been offered a version of the gospel that has no room for suffering in it, I'm quite convinced that that's a demonically twisted version of the gospel. The prosperity gospel in its most blatant sense, the gospel that says, follow Jesus and everything will work out. Follow Jesus and you'll never be afraid. Follow Jesus and you'll never be sick. Follow Jesus and you'll never suffer. Follow Jesus and your bank, bank account will only increase. Follow Jesus and that that is not just a version of Christianity. That is a perversion of Christianity. And if you think my words are strong, Jesus' words to Peter were stronger. Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Don't you create a Messiah that is all resurrection and no cross. Don't you invent a gospel that is all victory and no suffering. Don't you invent a version of following Jesus that is all happy and never sad, that is all Easter and never Good Friday. This is Holy Week. And in Holy Week, we get confronted by the Messiah as he really is. 
And it challenges everything. It challenges our own desires. Maybe Peter, a psychologist, might say, maybe Peter was projecting his own fears onto Jesus. Maybe Peter was saying, Jesus, don't talk about suffering and death, really, because Peter was saying, because I don't want to suffer and die. Instead of saying, listen, when you understand the implications of calling Jesus the Messiah, it means everything gets redefined. It means suffering has its place within our story, but it is not the last word of our story. All of a sudden, we can say, yes, there is suffering. Yes, there is sacrifice. Yes, you, you have no idea what I've given up to follow Jesus. Yes, there's, there's pain because of living in a fallen world. Yes, suffering is part of the story, but it is not the end of the story. Suffering gets changed. It doesn't get eliminated. It gets redeemed. But everything gets reshaped. Power gets reshaped. All of a sudden, we start to see a king, a version of a king who doesn't come with the soldier's sword, but with a servant's towel. That happens in Holy Week. Thursday at Passover, Jesus, knowing that all authority had been given to him, John says, took off his outer garment, and began to wash their feet. Everything gets redefined. See, guys, listen, I think we get it. We get it. Jesus, you're the Son of God. Jesus, you're the Messiah. But we are not yet catching what it really means for our life. It's going to take us a lifetime of grace, a lifetime of the Holy Spirit working in us to say, okay, you see me, great. Now begin to see the world through me. Begin to think differently about money. Begin to think differently about family. Begin to think differently about relationships. Begin to think differently about business. Begin to think differently about politics. Now, there are no easy answers about politi- to political questions, and I certainly don't hope to offer any of them. But what I, what I am asking is that you would wrestle through these issues through the lens of the crucified and risen Jesus. I know. Someone says, oh, listen, Glenn, who cares? We're not electing a pastor in chief. I know that. But that doesn't mean as Christians, you're, we're not allowed to make decisions w- w- through any other lens than the lens of Jesus, the crucified and risen. But do you know what I've encountered? I've encountered people who are very happy for Jesus to be the Savior of their soul and the Lord of the afterlife. But they're very happy to have their money and security and prosperity be their gods of this life. Now, I hope I'm not stepping on too many toes. <laughs> I'm starting to wonder if our real gods are security and prosperity, and our real devil is the other political party. And so anything that works through that grid, that's the one I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. Instead of saying, look, There is no easy solution to this. It is complex and complicated, but can we live all of our life through the lens of Jesus, the crucified and risen? How do I think through everything? Again, I'm not giving you one-size-fits-all answers. This is the work that you and the Holy Spirit have to wrestle through together to say, okay, okay, Lord, what does it mean? You are the crucified and risen Messiah. That means, that means I'm seeing a different kind of reality. It's like the Old Testament reading where the, the prophet said, Lord, let my servants see not just the armies, but see the spiritual things. How do I see something, a different reality going on here? How do I see more to the story than what the news tells me? How do I see Jesus, the crucified and risen? How does that reshape everything? 
Jesus is not the Savior of our soul and the Lord of the afterlife. He is the King of all. The King of all. And that's something it took Peter and the rest of the disciples a little while to realize. A little while to realize that, look, if I make this confession, actually, I need to begin to see the whole world differently. And you can tell when you follow the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts, they begin to start making claims that actually come across very political. Because all of the things that people said about Caesar, Caesar's the son of God, Caesar's the prince of peace, Caesar's the Lord, Caesar's this, Caesar brings freedom, Caesar brings salvation. All of those propaganda statements, the early disciples said, you know what? (laughs) That's not true. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus brings peace. Jesus brings freedom. And not in a spiritual, ethereal, heavenly, afterlife kind of sense. No, I mean his kingdom is breaking in here and now. You don't serve Jesus for heaven, but serve money for now. You serve Jesus for all of it. The king over all. The king over all. So yeah, it may take a moment of grace to see Jesus as he really is, but it'll take a lifetime of grace to see what it fully means. Now maybe... Deep down, the question inside us is, okay, I want to trust him, but Glenn, how can I trust a Messiah that is not like the one I can control and fashion? I mean, how do I know I can trust Jesus? If he's not the Messiah I imagined, how how do I know he's a good one? Right? It's uh, it's like the Chronicles of Narnia question. Aslan, is, is he safe? I didn't say anything about safe, but he is good. Well, how do we know this Jesus is good then? Isaiah wrote a marvelous book. Isaiah gave us two beautiful pictures of the Messiah. But these two pictures of the Messiah are so different that for a little while there was some scholarship that said, well, maybe it's two different books. Maybe it's two different Isaiahs because Isaiah 1 through 39 shows us the Messiah as a conquering king who would destroy all of God's enemies. And Isaiah 40 through 55 in particular shows us a suffering servant, a chosen one who suffers on behalf of the nation. And the question was, are there two messiahs? I mean, how does this work? And Jesus shows up as both, as both the conquering king and the suffering servant. And let me tell you why that's good news. You see, if Jesus was only the conquering king, we'd be doomed. Because the conquering king came to destroy all of God's enemies. And Paul tells us that we were God's enemies. So be careful what you wish for. God, come on, come to this earth and destroy all your enemies. saying, are you sure? So you're on the wrong side of that. If Jesus were only the conquering king, it would not be good news. But if Jesus was only the suffering servant, we'd have no hope. We say, well, that's great. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on behalf of the nation. Um, But now you're dead. (laughs) Who will defeat the enemies if you just got defeated by the enemies? And only Jesus brings together in himself both the conquering king and the suffering servant so that he could take on himself the weight of all of our sins and by taking it on himself, destroy the very power of sin and death, setting us free. The words of the old confession used to be, dying you destroyed our death and rising you restored our life. Lord Jesus, come in 
So Jesus is not the Messiah we envisioned. He's better. Jesus is not the Messiah you envisioned. He's better. He's better. We could never have drawn it up this way. Do you see now if when we look at Calvary and we say, Jesus, you are better than I could have ever imagined, that's why you can say for every minute of your life, you can say, okay, Jesus, I don't fully get what the implications of following you mean for this decision or this part of my life or this part. I I don't fully get it, but I want to trust you because you are better. Your kingdom is better. Your kingdom is better is such that in the end, even losers look like winners. Even martyrs are called victors. It's all upside down. The, 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 the lion who reigns, when you look at him, looks like a lamb who was slain. Say, so Jesus, you're not the Messiah I envisioned. You're better.